0: Today, and welcome to the Upstart second quarter 2023 earnings call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Jason Schmidt, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead.
1: Good afternoon and thank you for joining us on today's conference call to discuss Upstart's second quarter 2023 financial results. With us on today's call are Dave Gerard, Upstart's Chief Executive Officer, and Sanjay Datta, our Chief Financial Officer. Before we begin, I want to remind you that shortly after the market closed today, Upstart issued a press release announcing its second quarter 2023 financial results and published an investor relations presentation. Both are available on our investor relations website, ir.upstart.com. During the call, we will make forward-looking statements, such as guidance for the third quarter 2023 relating to our business and our plans to expand our platform in the future. These statements are based on our current expectations and information available as of today and are subject to a variety of risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. Actual results may differ materially as a result of various risk factors that have been described in our filings with the SEC. As a result, we caution you against placing undue reliance on these forward-looking statements. We assume no obligation to update any forward-looking statements as a result of new information or future events, except as required by law. In addition, during today's call, unless otherwise stated, references to our results are provided as non-GAAP financial measures and are reconciled against our GAAP results, which can be found in the earnings release and supplemental tables. To ensure that we can address as many analyst questions as possible during the call, we request that you please limit yourself to one initial question and one follow-up. Later this quarter, Upstart will be participating in the Goldman Sachs Communicopia Plus Technology Conference September 7th and the Piper Sandler Growth Frontiers Conference September 12th. Now I'd like to turn it over to Dave Girard, CEO of Upstart.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our earnings call covering our second quarter 2023 results. I'm Dave Girard, co-founder and CEO of Upstart. I told you last quarter that I was hopeful Q1 was a transitional one for Upstart, and I continue to believe that's the case. I'm pleased we delivered quarter-on-quarter growth in Q2 for the first time in more than a year. And more importantly, we achieved record high contribution margin and positive cash flow a result of our efforts over the past year to improve efficiency and operating leverage in our business. This is despite an environment where banks continue to be super cautious about lending. Interest rates are as high as they've been in decades, and capital markets remain challenged. A close look at our financials in Q2 suggests that Upstart has the opportunity to grow quickly and profitably when we return to a normalized economy. I'm also pleased to see clear signs that inflation is ebbing. Despite a continued strong labor market, our lens on inflation is different from that of others. From our point of view, wage growth in excess of goods inflation is a new and positive development, particularly for the less affluent segments of the U.S. that we tend to serve. The market is increasingly optimistic that the Fed can achieve their 2% inflation target without a serious recession. While a recession remains a possibility, our view is it's likely to be a shallow, white-collar recession one less likely to result in significant unemployment for less affluent Americans. And unlike 18 months ago, the Fed now has readily available tools to handle a significant slowing of the economy. They can lower rates to spur growth once again. We continue to be confident that our core personal loan risk models are properly calibrated and have been so since November of 2022. Thus, we expect these recent vintages to deliver at or above target returns. Funding markets remain cautious and risk-averse. Banks and credit unions are generally focused on deposits and liquidity, while capital markets are beginning to show signs of normalization. We added another committed capital partner in July, and are in conversations with several more interested parties. We also completed a securitization after the close of Q2 with significantly tighter spreads than our prior deal earlier in the year. Meanwhile, we continue to manage Upstart cautiously but optimistically in a funding-constrained environment. Every week, I remind the Upstart team to focus maniacally on improving every aspect of our business, strengthening our company for a time when the markets will inevitably return to center. As I said to you last quarter, I focus our team's energy on improving Upstart in four key dimensions. First, best rates for all. The core thesis of Upstart is that superior AI-enabled risk models will improve access to credit for all, and the company that can build superior risk models faster than anyone else stands to benefit from this dramatic transformation of the lending industry. In this light, I want to share an exciting breakthrough, something we call parallel timing curve calibration. This is a technique aimed at accelerating the pace of model calibration and thus model development. The challenge with launching a new model in lending is that you have to wait many months to see how it performs in the real world. If you're originating three-year loans, then you need to originate some loans and then watch them perform for 36 months to have clear feedback on model calibration across the timing curve. But with parallel timing curve calibration, the new model can be used to re-underwrite all in-process loans from the past, generating new predictions for how they will perform in their remaining months. This is not a backtest. The new model is used to predict how all outstanding loans in the platform will perform in coming months, not how they perform to date. In this way, within a few months, you can have a clear signal as to calibration across all months in the timing curve. This results in a dramatically faster calibration process for new models. From the point of view of our lending partners and credit investors, this is a giant win because it means we provide a tighter and faster feedback loop regarding model performance. We're very excited about its potential to extend our leadership in AI lending and are in the process of patenting this technique. Next, more efficient borrowing and lending. Last quarter, we reached an all-time high of 88% of unsecured loans fully automated. That means instant and automated approval with no waiting, no documents to upload, and no phone calls. This matters a lot because even the most accurate loan pricing model is useless if applying for a loan is too time-consuming or laborious. The notion of building an entirely software-driven credit origination process, one that can run 24-7 in a fully lights-out environment, has been with me since Upstart's founding and was inspired by my years at Google. Please bear with me as I share a short story. In 2003, I was interviewing for a role at Google. The company was still private at the time. So the world knew little about the financial giant that was growing in Mountain View. At one point in the process, the external recruiter said that I couldn't interview that week at Google because the entire company was skiing at Lake Tahoe. I thought to myself, that's a great company. Then she said, "But get this, the company is still making 7 or 8 million dollars a day in revenue." I thought to myself, "No, that's an amazing company." And the idea has stuck with me since. So how have we done In 2016, we began to pursue the goal of fully automated loans, zero human involvement from rate requests to transfer of funds, approved in a matter of seconds lights out. By Q2 2017, 29% of our unsecured loans were fully automated. In Q2 2019, it was 64%. In Q2 2021, it was 69%. And in Q2 2023, this past quarter, it was 88%. Automation doesn't just allow us to scale originations faster than headcount. It creates a wow moment for consumers who have never experienced such a fast and effortless loan application process. Recently, we began to brand this Fast Track, something we should probably have done years ago. This breakthrough experience is a signature of Upstart and the lenders that we serve. Next, more resilient. In addition to ongoing initiatives to strengthen the funding side of our marketplace, we continue to optimize our fixed costs. This increases the leverage in our business so that Upstart can thrive across future economic cycles. In Q2, we identified another $7 million in annual technical infrastructure costs that we can eliminate, bringing our total annual cost savings and tech expenses to nearly $17 million. We continue to hire very modestly and only in strategic situations. We also achieved a contribution margin of 67%, our best ever by a long shot. This is a sure sign that our focus on efficiency is bearing fruit. A principal driver of this record contribution margin was our efforts to build a stronger relationship with our existing customers. As a result of these efforts, 38% of our originations in Q2 came from repeat borrowers, also a record for us. And as a consequence of that, We also saw record low acquisition cost per loan in Q2. Next, expanding our footprint. We continue to make progress in our newer products and are excited to see the progress we'll make through the rest of 2023. In the second quarter, we made significant strides in our auto retail lending business. We expanded our footprint from 39 rooftops with upstart lending implemented last quarter to 61 rooftops today. We also added 12 additional states we now support, covering more than 65% of the U.S. population. We launched new risk models for both our auto refinance and retail lending products, delivering as much accuracy improvement as we've seen in the last year from our personal loan models. We continue to improve our auto recovery performance, reducing delays in recovery cycle by 75%. On the feature side, we launched a new device agnostic in-store application that expands access to desktops, laptops, and tablet browsers. We also brought on our second and third lending partners for auto retail. No easy feat given the current market environment. We're also making rapid progress on our small-dollar relief loans. These loans start at just a few hundred dollars and are currently offered only to upstart applicants who don't qualify for our mainstream personal loans. For this reason, they're entirely incremental to both our approval rates and our model training set. Our first vintages have now fully reached maturity, and our model is now fully calibrated, with observed losses in line with expectations for our most recent model version. In a first for Upstart, we began using cash flow data as part of the risk model for small dollar loans. This incremental data has led to increased approval rates and will eventually become available for all our loan products. Our fully automated rate in Q2 for small-dollar loans was 90%, an incredible achievement that demonstrates the power and impact of AI in lending. In Q3, we'll move beyond offering this product exclusively to those declined for personal loans, and we'll finally enable direct consumer applications. Last but not least, I'm happy to let you know that our home equity product is officially off the ground with a pilot program in the state of Colorado. We expect a fast follow with the state of Michigan and also hope to be in a handful of additional states by the end of Q3. This is the first upstart product specifically designed for prime borrowers, where a superior process enabled by automation is a richer source of differentiation than loan pricing itself. As a reminder, I mentioned last quarter that we're targeting online approval in less than 10 minutes and a closing process of less than five days for an upstart-powered HELOC against an industry average closing time of more than a month. To wrap up, we're not yet certain the economy is headed to a better place. So we continue to be cautious while investing for the long-term. And you're now beginning to see the benefits of our discipline approach. Regardless of the economy's direction in the coming months, I'm confident that we're building a better, stronger enterprise for the future. We're in the pole position to lead the industry to an AI-enabled future one that represents a giant leap forward for both borrowers and lenders. And we do this not because of fascination with AI, but because of what brought us here, the potential to dramatically improve access to credit for tens or even hundreds of millions of Americans. There are many dimensions along which you can weigh our efforts to make Upstart stronger. Speed of model development, strength of unit economics, low fixed costs, demonstrable leverage in our business, improved funding supply, and growing product diversity. But the dimension that gives me confidence more than any of these is talent density at both the executive and individual contributor level. For those excited about AI and passionate about its potential to improve lives, we know of no better place than Upstart to build a career. And while we're hiring strategically and with extreme caution, our digital first approach is enabling us to hire top talent across the country More than 90% of job candidates have accepted our offers in recent months, an incredible success rate. While much of the world is debating how to return to the office full-time, we're very happy with the results of our digital-first approach. I will close with a huge thank you to all Upstarters, as well as the family and the friends that support them. We're on an incredible mission together, and it wouldn't be possible without each of you. Thank you, and now I'd like to turn it over to Sanjay, our Chief Financial Officer to walk through our Q2 2023 financial results and guidance. Sanjay?
3: Thanks, Dave, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. We're pleased with our return to sequential growth and EBITDA profitability this past quarter. As our work to unlock committed funding, rationalize our fixed cost base, and expand margins begins to bear fruit. We accomplished these objectives despite ongoing macro challenges for our lending partners and despite a U.S. borrower whose recovery from the stimulus-driven effects of 2021 and 2022 has yet to fully materialize. Our best measure of borrower delinquency trends, the Upstart Macro Index, has tread water over the past few months, and in fact even seen a more recent seasonal increase versus earlier 2023 levels, as we came off of the favorable tax refund seasonality that ran through April. Despite a continuing recovery in the disposable income, stemming from the ever-strengthening labor market, any incremental earnings over the past quarter have been directed almost entirely towards higher consumption, which has continued to increase in lockstep. And consumer balance sheets have not benefited from incremental savings as they had earlier in the year. Despite these latest dynamics, we believe our underwriting models remain well calibrated to this environment, and we are expecting our vintages since late 2022 to deliver or exceed their targets. On the funding side of the ecosystem, banks remain conservative in managing the asset side of their balance sheets, generally seeking to rationalize loan positions and conserve cash in aggregate. The ongoing supply of loans on offer in the secondary markets by sellers anxious for liquidity contributes to a challenging market dynamic, with loan books being sold at bargain prices and creating no shortage of buying opportunities for selective investors. Our view is that it will take some time for the market to work its way through this surplus of cheap available yield. Despite this, we continue to pursue a number of promising discussions with prospective funding partners, aimed at bringing more committed capital to the platform, and believe that we will be well positioned once the loan market returns to a more traditional state of pricing equilibrium. With these items as context, here are some financial highlights from the second quarter of 2023. Revenue from fees was $144 million in Q2, comfortably above our guided expectation of $130 million, aided by a beneficial mix shift towards institutional funding as well as ongoing take rate optimization. Net interest income was $8 million, largely owing to higher than expected discount rates and unrealized fair value adjustments on some existing assets, as well as the impact of rising borrower charge-offs, particularly in our legacy R&D portfolio. Taken together, net revenue for Q2 came in at $136 million, slightly above guidance and representing a 40% contraction year-over-year. The volume of loan transactions across our platform in Q2 was approximately 109,000 loans up roughly 30% sequentially and representing over 43,000 new borrowers. Average loan size of $11,000 was up 4% versus the same period last year, but down sequentially due to growth in small-dollar loans. Our contribution margin, a non-GAAP metric, which we define as revenue from fees minus variable costs for borrower acquisition, verification, and servicing as a percentage of revenue from fees, came in at 67% in Q2, up 20 percentage points from 47% last year, and 7 percentage points above our guided expectation for the quarter. Continued investment in loan processing automation and fraud models have led to a new high in fully automated rates at 87%, bringing down loan onboarding costs and improving the conversion efficiency of our marketing dollars. Higher numbers of repeat borrowers have similarly improved our overall cost per acquisition, and a mixed shift towards institutional funding has benefited our take rates. Taken together, our contribution margins are stronger than they have ever been. Operating expenses were $169 million in Q2, down 35% year-over-year and 28% sequentially, as workforce restructuring initiatives announced in Q1 are now translating into reduced operating burn in addition as dave alluded to we have done a significant amount of work to improve the efficiency and decrease the overall expense of our technical infrastructure which represents a large portion of our fixed cost base declines in other categories such as sales and marketing and consumer customer operations were largely in line with the decline in the loan volumes that drive them Altogether. Q2 gap net loss was $28.2 million and adjusted EBITDA was positive $11 million, both comfortably ahead of guidance. Adjusted earnings per share was $0.06 based on a diluted weighted average share count of $91.0 We ended the quarter with loans on our balance sheet of $838 million, down sequentially from $982 million the prior quarter. Of that amount, Loans made for the purposes of R&D, principally within the auto segment, represented $493 million of the total. Just after quarter close, we completed a one-off $200 million ABS transaction funded entirely from our own balance sheet. As you may recall, we traditionally sponsor ABS transactions on behalf of our loan buyers, who are usually the principal economic agents and loan contributors to the transaction. In this case, we took the unusual step of funding a deal from the Q2 vintages accumulated entirely on our own balance sheet. We did this both to reset the market understanding for how our more recent vintages should be expected to perform, as well as to serve as a visible signal to the market of our confidence in the adjustments that have been made by our own underwriting models in adapting to the new environment. Our corporate liquidity position at the end of Q2 remains strong with $510 million dollars of total cash on the balance sheet and approximately $558 million in net loan equity at fair value. Looking ahead, while there remain good reasons to be optimistic about the general longer-term direction of the U.S. consumer, in the short term, we remain circumspect about the timing of the recovery of borrower delinquency, delinquency trends and the recovering health of the funding markets more broadly. In particular, until we see a definitive inflection and reversal in the trajectory of UMI, we will continue to err on the side of being very conservative in our assessment and pricing of borrowers. With this context in mind, for Q3 of 2023, we expect total revenues of approximately $140 million, consisting of revenue from fees of $150 million, And net interest income of approximately negative 10 million. Contribution margin of approximately 65%, net income of approximately negative $38 million, adjusted net income of approximately negative $2 million, adjusted EBITDA of approximately $5 million, and a diluted weighted average share count of approximately 84.5 million shares. Notwithstanding the promising direction this past quarter, there is still much work to be done to restore our business to the scale and growth that we aspire to. We have made encouraging recent strides in execution, operational discipline, technological innovation, and deal-making. And while we await emergence from the combined jet-wash of the funding macro and the borrower delinquency trends that are running their course, we will continue to push for further progress in all of these areas. When we are finally clear of the environmental turmoil around us, we are convinced that our business will be as formidable as ever. Thanks to all of the teams at Upstart who continue to execute ahead of expectation. This has obviously not been an easy past few quarters, but I am confident that we are pointed in the right direction and that we have the right people in place to seize the once-in-a-generation opportunity that remains before us. Or, as we like to say internally, we are under the maple tree. With that, Dave and I are happy to open the
2: call to any questions. Operator?
0: Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star one on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow the signal to reach our equipment. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one. We will take our first question from Simon Clinch with Atlantic Equities. Please go ahead.
4: Hi guys, uh, thanks for uh, taking my question. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm really interested in, um, I guess, what levers uh, you, or perhaps how you respond when you start to see the UMI uh, flat or uh, flatten or improve. Yeah, what what are the levers that you would uh, you would be able to pull, um, and how should we think therefore about the speed at which you can uh, you can start to uh, get a recovery in your conversion rates and and your general loan growth and your market share gains as a result of that.
2: Sure. Thanks, Simon. This is Dave. Um, basically, we're, we are watching UMI trends in, a, in effectively maintaining uh, what we hope to be a buffer between you know, the assumptions that are in a new uh, loan model or in, or in the loans that are being produced in any particular time to the trend in UMI. So as, uh, we, as we will hopefully see over time, UMI trending back down Um, At some point, the underlying assumptions in the models will stick with that. And, again, maintaining – always aiming to maintain a buffer, but it should trend down. So, you know, UMI, as you see it, really uh, is is the output of, you know, what's going on out there in the economy, uh, and we always want to stay ahead of it. And the best thing we can really do is make sure UMI is as accurate and as recent as possible. That's why we're sort of continuing to innovate on it. But – uh it will be be a good indication of when um you know the assumptions that will go into the the, the next loans that are being originated.
4: Okay, I understand. All right. Um and just as a follow up then, um I was wondering um maybe Sanjay you could talk through the uh, the slide on um uh the long term funding commitments and your share of the risk and uh, just make sure we understand sort of what's going on that in that um, particular um situation or example.
3: Yeah, hey, Simon, this is Sanjay, happy to do it. Um, yeah, so we have a new slide in our materials that's meant to sort of pull together the the, the punchline for uh, essentially what we have at risk as part of our uh, committed capital partnerships. Um, they're a little bit hard to pull together in the financials directly because the contracts are all a little bit different and they're all accounted for a little bit different differently. But the, I guess at a, at a headline level, as part of those deals, we have uh, invested or co-invested to date. Uh, on the order of 40 million dollars so that i guess you can think of as the uh, maximum exposure we have Um, that 40 million dollars over time will be worth as little as zero or as much as around 80 million dollars 83 million i guess depending on uh you know the time and extent to which these loans over or underperform um, our best current estimate, given the trends, is that that $40 million we believe is on track to be worth about $52 million. So there's some marginal overperformance there. Um, but that's something that we will obviously uh, forecast and track for you guys over time.
5: Okay. Uh, thanks, guys.
0: We will take our next question from Lance Jesselrun with BTIG. Please go ahead.
6: Hey, thanks for taking my question, guys. Um, First one's just around, you know, kind of the governor on your growth right now, which is that 36% APR. Any commentary or color around how many you kind of have to turn back right now because they're, you know, the the risk model is turning them above 36% and, you know, how should we kind of think about that going forward in the coincidence of where you see, uh, um, you know, Fed funds going?
3: Hey, Lance. Um Let's see. So I guess that, that 36% APR cap um, with the current levels of UMI is a significant <laughs> constraint on our business. In fact, I think uh, as we stand today, it's probably the, the bigger constraint on growth you know, on our platform. It's it's very punitive um, uh, from the perspective of uh, our approval rates, uh, which are, are are quite low right now. Um, how to think about this evolving going forward? Well, the 36% APR cap will not change. That, that's something that is sort of sacred to us, um, as UMI declines, uh, sort of as Simon said in his question, as, as our observed, uh, uh, the observation of UMI declines over time because presumably the macro economies uh, coming back into equilibrium, um, we will accordingly reduce the forward assumptions being fed to the model. And um, that will essentially reflect lower loss estimates over time, and that will pull um, Borrowers who are currently excluded uh, from our our uh, our credit box, they will pull them back into the approvable universe. So that's the mechanism by which we would expect to grow as loss rates in the economy subside and as UMI comes back down.
6: Got it. Thank you. And then in terms of uh, you know July data, I know there's been some alternative data sources out there, but anything you can kind of uh, you know frame around July data and where it's come in and uh, you know how How do you kind of see that um, uh, in terms of a quarter or in terms of a monthly run rate uh, through August and September?
3: Uh, So you're asking about July data, length? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I don't. We're not in a really, really in a position to comment at all on July numbers. Hopefully, we'll have a good report for you when we uh, when we when we talk about Q3.
5: Got it. Thanks.
0: We will take our next question from Ramsey Elisal with Barclays. Please go ahead.
7: Hi, thanks. This is John Coffey on for Ramsey. I was wondering, uh, Sanjay, if you could tell me a little bit more about the loan balances you have on the balance sheet. Um, I know some came off in Q2, I think, from some of your new partners, um, and clearly those got built up a uh, Built up a little bit again. Could you just maybe talk briefly about how we should think about the cadence of those loans on the balance sheet for the remainder of the year, and if that like billion dollar mark is still sort of like maybe a sort of a informal high water mark that you won't go beyond, or have you rethought that a little bit?
3: Hey John, um, I guess uh, a specific comment, a general comment. The comment specific to Q2 would be, um, yeah, it is true that while the uh, the net loan balance from Q1 to Q2 went down, um, we sort of went down farther and then built it back up. Um, One of the things we were doing uh, very deliberately was to build up some uh, very uh, very fresh collateral to be able to put into an ABS deal. Um, And that ABS deal, as I said in my remarks, happened after the end of the quarter. So those loans Sort of stood on our balance sheet at the end of the quarter, and shortly after we we put them into an ABS deal. It's a bit unusual for us to run an ABS deal off of our own balance sheet, as I said. But um, there's a couple of uh, important reasons for why we wanted to do it. Um, we wanted to put fresh, fresh collateral into the uh, securitization reporting so that people could see how uh, you know the models have changed and how they you know how they might expect freshly uh, freshly originated loans to, to to perform. So that that's. Maybe one dynamic that's specific to the quarter. Um, more generally, I, I think our, our construct has not changed. Um, you know, we're comfortable going up to a number around a billion or so in loan assets, um, and you know that, that's a number that leaves us with still, I, I think, a, a comfortable amount of cash to uh, continue running the business and, and have some safety stock. Um, and uh, you know, within that within that parameter, we'll sort of flex up and down. As we uh, as we believe benefits the business.
5: All right, thanks, Andrea.
0: We will take our next question from Rob Wildhack with Autonomous Research. Please go ahead.
5: Hi guys, uh, just another
8: question about the uh, committed capital co-investment. I, I do appreciate the detail and the slides there. How are changes to that reflected in the income statement? And, and is, does that mean that there's a plus um, 11.5 million impact in the second quarter from the markup over the 40.2 million?
3: Yeah, hey Rob. Um, uh, so the, the short answer is no. That that impact is not in the PNL. Um, I wish it were that simple. Uh, the reality is we've done uh, a couple of different deals, um, and contractually, they'll have their uh, nuances. I think the the result of that is that they're all being accounted for in slightly different ways. Um, Some of it is showing up on the balance sheet as a beneficial interest. Some of it is showing up on the balance sheet under our restricted assets. Uh, Some of it is being fair valued. Some of it is being carried at cost. Um, So I think the the difficulty of trying to pull all those different accounting treatments together and and create a clear picture is is the reason why we're just going to put it on one slide for you. Um, but you know the the, sh- the short answer to your to your ultimate question is no it's not it's not really hitting the P and L um, in a way where fair value is being uh, you know uh, recognized in the net in interest income line.
5: Okay, thanks. And then of the uh, of the two billion longer term funding commitment you announced uh, in May, how much of that was funded in the second quarter?
3: Uh, I mean, I would say approximately, if you sort of uh, remove the back book component that was a, a component of that
5: original deal, uh, roughly a quarter. Okay, so one quarter in excess of the 352 that you sold. that, Rob? Uh, no, I think you dropped for me quickly. Oh, sorry. Pretending. I just
3: said that that's, cor- that's, that's, that's correct. The statement okay, you made, perfect. you know, Thank beyond you. the basket sale, it was about a quarter of the remainder. Great. Thanks. Sorry about that.
0: We will take our next question from James Fawcett with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead.
5: Thank you very much. Um, just hoping to to get a little bit of clarification really quickly
7: here, um, and, and maybe I missed it. In the guide, you're looking for around a, a uh $10 million at its interest income in the third quarter. Is that being driven by um, loans on the balance sheet or the way that the funding commitments work through the P&L? Just trying to make sure I understand
3: that mechanism. Yeah, again, Um yeah, I, I would say a major factor um, in that number is the fact that, by and large, our balance sheet now, uh, particularly after the ABS deal we completed, which where we cleared out most of our uh, recent um, sort of core personal loans, the remaining balances are R and D, and a lot of it is very seasoned. And some of those older vintages of, say, auto loans, you know, auto loans from a year and a half ago, um, their charge-offs are starting to uh, to um, uh, to grow uh, both because they were originated at a time where our models were still, uh, you know, sort of in calibration and as well, they were originated in an environment that was, you know, and has rapidly deteriorated. So on some level, maybe you could think of this uh, partly as some of the costs of doing R and D. Um, we've got a book of R and D loans now
9: and, uh, and the charge offs are elevated. Okay, great. And then, you
5: know, I guess just as, as, related to um
7: demand and, and originations like how are you thinking about um the impact from from higher take rates, and and you know how should we think about how those could move and how overall origination
5: should trend at least on a sequential basis through the, the rest of this year and into 24. Thanks. Hey James um for sure
2: our Our rates are kind of as high as they've ever been, I believe. Um, And that part of that is a function of UMI being super high. Part of it is the return demanded by the market is much higher, of course, related to Fed rates. Um, And also our take rate is high. And all three of those contribute to the rates being high. Uh, We would anticipate those things kind of coming off together. Um, so, So, you know, as you see UMI trend down and maybe at some point, interest rates will trend down as well. Um, but also our take rate is, is, is probably higher than we would see it being in a kind of normalized scenario. So all three of those are very high, driving the price very high. And for sure, the reason, you know, I mean, the, the counter to that is that the, the market for, you know, the loan demand is very strong. And um, for that reason, that's why you're seeing, you know, very low CAC. Um, and um, so that's kind of in the, the place where we are today. Prices for credit are super high. Demand remains super high. Um, and that sort of nets out to where we are right now.
5: Okay. Thank you.
0: We will take our next question from Reggie Smith with JP Morgan. Please go ahead.
9: Hey, thanks for taking my question, guys. Um, I guess kind of a follow-up to, to the, uh, to the last question. Sounds like obviously pricing is, is up right now. How do you guys think about, um, you know, managing adverse selection. Uh maybe talk a little bit about some of the uh sensitivity people may um exhibit to price. Um, I see that your your approval or conversion rate is down and I know there's two components to that. Uh I I would imagine approvals are down, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the acceptance uh of these offers as well. Uh to kind of give us some color there. Follow up. Thank you. Yeah, hey Reggie. Um
3: Sure, so let's see a little bit about adverse selection uh um adverse selection tends to be uh, an impact that is greater where the market or the segment is more competitive so when there's a lot of sort of competing alternatives uh, and you try to raise your rates, you'll typically uh, suffer from adverse selection and of course the the you know when when segments are less competed adverse selection um you know, is, is less of an effect. In our case, uh, for, you know, a lot of the segments uh, where we tend to garner uh, a lot of volume, um, you know, even with higher rates, we, we tend to still have the best rates available. Um, so even with higher take rates and higher loss assumptions, um, you know, we we in many instances are still significantly below what you might think of as the market clearing rate out there based on the, on the credit scores. And so in that instance, uh, you know, there's not a lot of discernible adverse selection. If we were to try and raise our take rates significantly in very highly competed segments, very prime borrowers, then it's something that we would be thinking about a lot more. Um, and um, your second question, anyway. Reggie,
5: is about acceptance rates? Or? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. I yes. mean, it, it's it's very simple. It's It's a pretty classic sort of supply and demand construct, whereas we <laughs> raise our rates, and not only do our approval rates go down because of the 36% uh, APR cutoff, but for those who remain approved, they'll be less likely to take a loan. Um, and typically, at least what we've observed in our data, is that people who don't take loans with us don't necessarily take them uh, from a competing uh, source. The majority of them just uh, you know, don't take the loan.
9: So it, it causes p- people's demand to reduce. Sure. Got it. And one quick follow-up on the uh, the co-investment. and I appreciate the disclosure. Um, how should we think about uh, that book? Is, are these uh, loans subordinated to the rest of the structure? Um, is there a certain ratio that you must hold relative to what you uh, you run through these through the through the committed facility? Um, did any any color you could could share there would uh, would be helpful for kind of modeling and thinking about that. Thank you.
3: Sure, yeah. I mean they do tend to sit in the equity part of the stack, uh, if you will, where in you know in a loan transfer, where you have sort of senior money and maybe mezzanine money and sort of equity or residual money, this tends to be uh sort of at, at the equity side of the of the stack. Um there's no uh sort of there's not necessarily any sort of specific ratios. Um I think each time there is an investment made by one of our uh Capital partners, we we tend to have a, a co investment that you know varies
5: depending on the relationship.
9: I understand. so. I guess there's no way to kind of think about or know how large that could be. Like do you have expectations over the next few quarters like how big that could be?
3: Um, none that we're talking about explicitly, but I guess I would say like we, we consider this to be a part of the overall sort of risk budget of the business, and we've talked about Sort of making sure we stay at or under a level of about a billion dollars in asset risk, and uh, you know this is part of that envelope. Um, so you know I, I would anticipate over time um, more of our capital sort of uh, falling into this category, maybe less under direct loan assets, um, where we can sort of use our capital to unlock broader pools of capital um, and co-invest, as opposed to having loans directly on the balance sheet, but. I think what we're going to try to do with uh, you guys is have a conversation about the overall sort of risk position and risk budget of the company. And, and we'll certainly have some views on on how big we would ever want that to get. Got it. Understood. Thank you so much.
0: We will take our next question from Giuliano Bologna with Compass Point. Please go ahead.
8: Thanks for uh, taking my questions. Um, One thing I'm curious about is uh, you obviously put in that that new risk sharing disclosure. Um, What I would be curious about, and I realize this period is probably somewhat different because you did a loan sale and you had some of the forward funding agreements funding in the quarter. I'm curious if you can provide a rough sense of how much, you know, principal that 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 risk, 40 million or so of, you know, up/down risk sharing covers.
5: Hey Juliano. Uh, yeah, on the order of eight hundred million. That sounds good. Very helpful.
8: Then uh you know, the, the next thing I'd be curious about is just thinking about from a, a funding perspective. You obviously build up the balance sheet and then you know, dispose some during three Q with the ABS deal. I would be curious if you have a rough sense of you know how much um you know balance sheet so how much the volume was that flowed through the balance sheet during uh the second quarter.
5: Oh so,
3: was. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we have that explicitly broken out, but I, I think that's something that you could probably deduce from the cash flow statement. We can point you in the right direction when we chat later.
8: That sounds good. Uh, yeah, it'll probably also come out in the queue uh, when that comes out as well. Um, then, and the only yeah. question, I think, which is a little bit of a follow-up, obviously, you know, on the forward funding agreement side, you you'd mentioned you know, in the past roughly $500 million per quarter. You mentioned an additional, uh, some additional partners. I'd be curious if that number changes, and obviously that will impact kind of where the risk sharing goes because uh, you, know, you won't have, may not have large loan sales going forward. I'd be curious just to get your perspective
3: on that. Sure. So, you, so you're asking if the amount of committed funding per quarter expectation has grown? Yeah, if that has changed. R- last quarter, the – what uh, was mentioned was roughly five hundred
8: million per quarter. I'm curious if that has changed you know with the new funding agreements and based on the current
3: arrangements in place. Uh, I would say not in a meaningful enough way to sort of uh, you know re-announce it if you will um, as Dave mentioned, we did um we we are working with a new partner uh, in the committed capital world and they're now sort of contributing to our funding um. But some of our constraints now are on the borrower side, and, and so I think you know, given that, we're probably in, in a similar ballpark.
8: That's uh, very helpful. I appreciate the uh, answers the questions, and I will jump back in the queue. Thank you.
0: We'll take our next question from David Scharf with JMP Securities. Please go ahead.
6: Uh, good afternoon, and uh, thanks for taking my questions. Um, a, a lot have been asked. I guess these are kind of extensions of what's already been uh, offered up. Um, but but Sanjay, you know, j- just back to, um, I, I guess, the, the funding side and in how it impacts kind of how you're thinking about originations. I, I know you've reiterated sort of the comfort level of that billion dollar um, ceiling on, on retained assets. Um, but is, is there any sort of targeted roadmap in, in that I, you know, for year end where you'd like to get the balance sheet contracted to? I mean, should should we be thinking about all these new funding partners as vehicles for um, stepped-up asset sales in the second half? Just just trying to get a sense how we ought to think about the on-balance sheet exposure um, going out six months and, and ultimately how much room you have to, you know, re-accelerate uh, volumes when the uh, macro environment dictates it. Hey, David.
9: um Sure.
3: Uh, let's see. I, I mean, a lot of it is dependent on the environment, of course. I mean, in an ideal world, what we'd love to do is uh, reduce the balance sheet significantly, um, uh, apply it to R&D, and begin to maybe apply more of it very surgically to these you know, committed capital-type co-investments where we can unlock much larger pools of third-party capital. Um, that's the ideal. Now, we're in an environment where um, Borrower demand is high, uh, funding markets are tight, um, and frankly, the collateral has a lot of excess value. I, I think that uh, they're priced for very high yields, um, and we can provide a lot of value to the business with one extra dollar origination uh, from the perspective that um, you know, we obviously unlock a lot of take rate, and then uh, similarly, I think these loans are priced for, for good yield. So it's, it's, a, it's a rational economic decision in the current environment. Uh, We'd love a normalized environment where there was, you know, plenty of third-party capital to satisfy the borrower demand, um, and we weren't in a position of of using ours. But, um, you know, that will require essentially a normalization of the UMI and a normalization of the funding markets.
6: Got it, got it. Hard to say whether
3: that will happen by the end of the year or not.
6: Yeah, understood. And maybe a follow-up, you know, regarding the uh, the negative fair value marks, uh, you know, again, this quarter. Were the downward revisions, are they mostly related to kind of discount rate, prevailing rates? Is it more credit performance related or is it just based on, um, you know, with so many underperforming loans for sale out there, you know, just kind of prevailing market um, data points you're seeing? And kind of related to that, is it it sort of evenly distributed? those fair value decreases to to personal loans in auto or is it more concentrated in auto?
3: Sure. Yeah. So in in Q2, I so there, there's two things of about equal magnitude. Um, one was on the unrealized fair value side, where, where some of our assets, notably some of the co-investments we made uh, in some of these deals, they they were you know they had applied to them a much steeper discount rate than we were anticipating by the third-party evaluators. Um So that was a sort of a, an unrealized uh, value reduction. Um, and the other was what I mentioned earlier, which is you know, predom- well, I mean, our R&D portfolio, which is predominantly auto, um, you know, they're they're getting to a level of charge-offs now that are are bringing down the the NII line. Um, I think if you're thinking about Q3 and forward, it's it's predominantly the latter. It's it's uh, you know, old loans in the auto segment uh, that were originated in a very different environment with a model that was still undergoing calibration, and um, so now that you know, I think we've learned a lot. In our calibration of the auto product, and in terms of the scale and timing of that R and D effort, I think there's uh, some some great learnings we've had, and how we will apply it differently to, you know, the next set of products that we're going to calibrate. But um, you know, the auto book that we have, that, that's really at the root of uh, a lot of the charge-offs that are coming through the P&L now. Great,
6: thanks so much.
0: We will take our next question from Vincent Kaintick with Stevens. Please go ahead.
5: Hey, good
7: afternoon. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, first question, just kind of a big question, uh, picture question about your funding partners. You know, when we uh, last spoke about the uh the Castle, like $2 billion, I think that was a proof of concept. So just wondering if you could talk about kind of the conversations, the appetite you've been having from, from uh, potential partners and kind of the mix between uh, institutional investors versus the banks and, and other guys. Uh, presumably, um, this, this, co-invest, this capital co-investment slide is very helpful in seeing that the assessed value is higher than the initial capital invested. So it, presumably that implies that the performance is better than kind of the initial agreement. So just sort of wondering if you could talk about the appetite and what your, your discussions with your partners.
5: Thank you.
3: Sure. Yeah. So a couple of questions in there. This is Sanjay. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of talk through them. The, the first question Really, is about the nature of the discussions around these sort of committed capital type deals. Um, we've done a couple of deals now. Um, they all have a slightly different flavor, but they all sort of get to the same thing, which is uh, it's, a, it's a counterparty that has the wherewithal to spend through you know through a cycle and and for some committed period of time. And in exchange, uh, we think there's some pretty attractive return profiles uh, for them. And as we've shown, we're willing to put our skin in the game uh, alongside. Uh, And I think that's, uh, that is on the one hand, a very attractive conversation right now. And I think there's a lot of people who are engaging on the other hand, as I said, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a market with a lot of distraction in it right now. Um, And so these conversations are making progress, but I think they are uh, there, you know, there's a lot of company (laughs) and any uh, investor who's selective right now has a lot of interesting options available. Some are, you know, ad hoc and one-off others are more programmatic, like the ones we're talking about with them. And. And so I think that uh, it's proving to be uh, an interesting and attractive option, but um, in a crowded field right now. Um, the the split between institutional money and bank money, um, I would say, as we said in our remarks, some of our take rates benefited this quarter because there was uh, a further shift towards institutional money. Uh, it's no secret that uh, banks have challenges right now uh, with liquidity. A lot of them, as we said, are looking to harvest cash um, uh and so you know that 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 was a that was a, a sort of a mixed shift that happened in Q2 it wouldn't surprise me uh if uh if that trend held or continued in Q3 um as for uh as for the uh the, the sort of the, the committed capital that we outlined in our investors uh slide and how to think about it um i guess first of all we're saying that you know the the um a large part of that Uh, initial uh, investment of capital on our part wasn't just new originations. As you recall, there was a a back book transaction uh, that was a part of the Castle Lake deal that you mentioned. Um, And so there was a sort of a one-time sort of retention of basis in that deal that's part of the $40 million. Um, I would say most of the new originations that we uh, uh, produced uh, under the guise of these committed capital deals In Q2, are sort of on track and at par, if you will. Uh, The majority of the upside that we have uh, between the 40 million that we invested and the 50 that we're sort of, um, you know, uh, assessing or or forecasting, is has to do with how the the back book itself was uh, priced and how it was expected to perform, and it is in fact, you know, beating those expectations. Um, So it's less, I would say, a reflection of new origination. Uh, more reflection of the of the back book, which is a, a pretty sizable portion of that $40 million. I guess the other implication is, as you think about how that might grow in the future, it certainly won't grow at a clip of $40 million uh, a, a quarter based on the agreements we have in place. Okay, that's super helpful. Quick uh, follow-up.
7: So the take rates,
3: presumably from
7: the, um, the mix shift and funding, uh, would it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that the take rate holds or even gets better Um, going forward. Just wanted to confirm
3: that. Thank you. Um, I guess in aggregate, uh, you can see that we've sort of guided to a relatively flat contribution margin next quarter, maybe uh, marginally lower. Um, And so I I think you could probably infer from that that our take rates, we're assuming that they're going to be roughly stable to this quarter. In the medium to longer term, as Dave said, we would expect with a normalizing economy for our take rates, uh, to to slowly um, to sl- slowly subside.
5: Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And we have time for one more question, and we will go to Simon Clinch with Atlantic Equities. Please go ahead.
4: Hi guys, thanks for taking my uh, second batch of questions. Um, I was actually wondering, uh, maybe Dave, if you could talk a bit more about the parallel timing curve calibration because. Um, I, I guess you know, I'm not the most tech-savvy person, and it, it sounded an awful lot like back testing to me. But you say it, it isn't, so I'd be really interested. In so how it really how it differs, uh, or you know why isn't it back testing, and why you uh, I guess you know what this really means in terms of your ability to uh, to capture the next uh, um, uh, next wave of well, actually manage through the next cycle that we see uh, in much better fashion than you have done in the last you know, couple of years
2: yeah sure Simon. I mean, it ultimately comes down to uh, being able to calibrate a model as quickly as possible, which really just leaps you into developing the next model and and so at the heart of it it's about you know model development speed. but the way it generally works is you know a back test is when you uh you know you apply you apply a new model to uh, a bunch of old loans and see if it can accurately predict their outcome. I mean, that's sort of the way that models are developed in the first place is, is something uh, like a, a very large back test. It's the, essentially what AI training is. Um, but in this case, what we're actually doing is not predicting the past, but predicting the future for loans that a different model had originated. And so what that really means is, as I said um, earlier, normally, you know, if you have 36-month loans, if you want to get accuracy, see, see that. Um, you know, the performance of the model through the entire timing curve, you need to wait 36 months, of course. But if you have a diverse set of loans that were originated in all sorts of times in the past several years, even in the first month, you're getting observations into all 36 months of the timing curve. And that's because you have re-underwritten loans that were originally done under a different model, but you're not predicting the past. You're predicting what they'll do in the next month and the month after that. So that's what's really unique about it is it is the true model. It is predicting, you know, future performance of loans, but it's predicting the future of loans that it didn't originally, uh, was not originally used to originate. And that's kind of the magic of it is it just gives you a lot more data about the performance of your loans, specifically about the timing curve uh, than you could get, um, which would normally, again, take much longer time. And, and that's the heart of it. It's, it's, um, it's a very novel notion. It helps you have a very clear understanding of how your model is performing very, very quickly, and, um, and that all goes toward,
5: toward speed. Okay, great. Thanks.
4: I'm have to go back to school on that one. Thank you.
2: We, we might try to write something up on this to get for, for the uh, for the nerds who really want to dig deep into how this something like this works. We will probably try to put something out there.
0: And that concludes today's question and answer session. I will turn the conference back to Dave Gerard for any additional or closing remarks.
2: Alrighty. Thanks to everybody for joining us today. Um, I'm confident that financial services and lending in particular will be one of the bright, shining stars for AI in the coming years and in the coming decades. And we believe there's no company better positioned to lead that transformation than Upstart. So thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time
0: this concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation and you may now disconnect.